it was like a little bit of chicken soup for the nerdy alien loving soul. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to be read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning. This podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Okay, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am Mark, your host for this episode. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about space operas. And I am once again joined by Gabriel, Corrine, Fiona, and Virginia. So as I just mentioned, this episode, we're going to be talking all about space opera books. So just to give you like a bit of my definition of space opera, it's kind of one of the larger subgenres or styles of science fiction. And the term comes from what was sort of originally a combination of an outer space setting with sort of over the top, almost melodramatic soap opera type elements, but set in outer space. Though nowadays, a lot of space operas don't necessarily contain like a lot of romance or plots that are necessarily about like emotional, like over the top kind of things that you would associate with a soap opera. Sometimes you can even associate it with the Western, like for example, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, on occasion referred to Star Trek as a space Western. So that's kind of has these different genres that can kind of combine into it in outer space. Like some other elements might include things like large scale space fleets and military battles in outer space, as well as things like political intrigue, upheaval, or like these giant outer space societies and empires and things like this set among vast galaxies across the universe. So kind of combining and playing with these different elements, creators in different mediums like books and films have found a way to get a very dedicated kind of fan base. You see these large series or franchises these days, like Star Trek, I mentioned, but also within like books, there's like very long running series. There's many well-known sci-fi authors now have made long careers out of this so it's definitely found a strong niche of its own and i think to get us started today we're going to start with gabriel we're going to start off hopefully strong with mine so i chose for this week the closed and common orbit by becky chambers so this is the second in the Wayfarers series and is the sequel to a book that you might have heard of before because I think it's probably one of the bigger ones um, for more recent stuff in the, the space opera genre, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. So this is its direct sequel, but Wayfarers is kind of a loose series. You can read the books as standalone pieces, which is what I did. I actually haven't read the first book before. And the most recent book in the series uh, is called The Galaxy and the Ground Within. And that was published in 2021, but this one was published back in 2016. So I picked this one up for a few reasons, mostly because of the way it was described to me when I was looking for something to read, which is a feel-good, slow-paced sci-fi. It was like a little bit of chicken soup for the nerdy alien-loving soul. Some would probably put it in the same vein from what I saw, and I would kind of agree with it, I think, for the most part, as maybe the Joss Whedon TV show Firefly, which I am a big fan of the series, or the video game series Mass Effect, which I also really love. And so I was like, okay, two for one, plus it sounds sounds pretty good, I'm going to try this. So when I was looking up stuff about the first novel, just to make sure that I 
had what I needed to kind of go into it, which it actually turned out that I I really didn't need to have done that because they do a pretty good job of really just keeping it a contained story. But a lot of the comments I was seeing was that folks found it was fairly slow, which, as I mentioned before, it's a very slow-paced book. And a lot of the things that happened in it didn't actually advance the plot that much. So it's kind of the like definition of a very character interaction driven novel and any momentum that that first novel had has been kind of taken away even more in this one it's almost entirely about these characters interacting with each other in a very cute slice of life feel good found family way it's about relationships and agency and coming to terms with the things in your life that you can't change and growth and lots of very sweet human things and that's important to mention because one of the main characters is not human at all So a closed and common orbit stars Loveless, the AI who is running the Wayfarer spaceship in the first novel, who is now on the run after she installed herself into a body. She and Pepper, another character for the first novel, leave the Wayfarer together to start a new life on another planet. Loveless changes her name to Sidra as she moves into her new body, and it's one of the many changes that she kind of grapples with. Her body doesn't feel quite right. Someone used to commanding a whole spaceship, having all of those different systems at her fingertips is going to have to adapt to the constraints of being a cyborg. And she's quite limited in the things that she can do. The reason that she moved to a body that felt wrong to her, because that's one of those sort of questions that you're looking at and you're going, well, why would you, why would you choose that? Was in part because of her programming. She's been programmed to serve a, a purpose. And that purpose was ultimately to make the humans on the spaceship happy and comfortable. So when she fails, she leaves, giving up her own happiness for others. So her story is kind of about finding herself amongst people she's not like and trying to find the balance between sort of discovering and easing into who she is and figuring out how much of that she can even show for her own safety. Her story is a little bit coming of age and it feels like it could be an allegory for gender or sexuality exploration or even neurodivergence. Sci-fi in general is very good at that, playing with metaphors or tackling real-life issues without actually having to sort of name them. And depending on who you are, you might project different parts of what you're interested in seeing onto Sidra. Pepper is the other main character of the story, and most of her stuff actually takes place in the past. So when she was made, her name was Jane Number 23. She was a cog in an industrial planet with no worth beyond her labor, just one in a long line of her clone sisters. So Pepper's story kind of follows how she comes to terms with her history and how she was treated, that that trauma, obviously, and how she forges a new story for herself as well. Her past overlaps with her future at some points, and obviously Pepper and Cedra live together, so It's a lot of balancing these two characters, the things that have happened to them and the future that they want to have together. One of the really lovely quotes in it, which I think sums up the whole thing quite nicely, is the planet was beautiful. The planet was horrible. The planet was full of people and they were beautiful and horrible too. So it doesn't really shy away from some of the darker parts of life. But even with that, it maintains like this like deep optimism in what people are capable of ultimately, even when there's maybe an interaction that goes quite badly between one of their friends and Sidra about once they learn that it's an AI, they kind of react badly, 
and then afterwards turn around and apologize for it. And there's some pretty obvious, there's some pretty obvious growth between all the characters and all of their relationships and stuff, which is important because otherwise nothing would be happening in this book. So you really have to enjoy the characters. And I would say it's quite easy to, like they're quite likable and you have to really, really love those, those interactions. So it's not a sapphic romance, but it is certainly a domestic story between the two of them, plus Blue and Tack, who are two of their friends. So it's one of those ones where this was published in 2016. I kind of wonder if it would have been a different book if it came out later. But it's definitely a, like a very, very close friendship between the two of them. Very domestic. And in general, it's very, it's very sweet in the sense that they're all trying to do the right thing. Screwing up sometimes, trying again. So maybe if you are a fan of either Firefly or Mass Effect, then this might be something that you would enjoy as well. Or if you are someone who enjoys fictional podcasts like I do, then maybe if you are a fan of Wolf 359 or EOS 10, especially EOS 10, I would say, this one definitely feels like it could be up your alley. All right. Thank you, Gabriel. Sounds like a very, as you said, like a very character and relationship driven book. So if you enjoy that kind of thing, I think that might be very enjoyable. I will go next. The book that I will be talking about is Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell. And this book is uh, Maxwell's debut novel as also uh, an expanded version of a book that she posted online on Archive of Our Own under the name Course of Honor. And even though it was published on Archive of Our Own, it is in its own unique universe. It's not like a derivative from a pre-existing work, but it was posted there because of its open accessibility. And just, I guess, also the fact that she's a new author. So sometimes that may be a way to sort of get your work out there before going a more traditional publishing route. So in Winter's Orbit, we are introduced to a complex universe and its various galaxies and systems that are governed by an organization called The Resolution, which is kind of a universe-wide United Nations that maintains peace amongst different galaxies through a complex set of treaties. The Resolution is enforced by its auditors, as they are known, who are tasked with verifying the authenticity and reciprocity of alliances of planets within the larger galactic system of galaxies, basically. Planets or galaxies that are not verified or instantiated as part of the Resolution are sort of essentially up for grabs for invasion by any sort of outer space superpower that wishes to invade them. And thus a lot of smaller planets or groups of planets decide to sort of co create their own coalition within the resolution as their own sort of power that has been protected by the resolution. And within this system, we're introduced to a relatively small empire called Iscat and its emperor who is facing a dilemma as a recent death in the royal family of Prince Tam in a flying car crash, has left them without a requisite marriage between the Iscat royal family and a representative from one of their vassal planets, Taya. As a condition of resolution, all the empires must bind their vassal planets to them through a series of marriages, clan responsibilities, smooth diplomatic relations, and other complex systems to ensure quote-unquote harmony or balance within the region. And as it sort of turns out, this harmony is sort of oftentimes a kind of enforced or duty-bound system that essentially forces people into certain situations that that aren't actually necessarily harmonious, but they sort of do it in order to sort of bear their duty or to make sure that their plants don't end up at like war and then get invaded and 
the resolution voids their treaties and things like that. So it's kind of a, it is a sort of balance, but it's also very tenuous and politically fraught. And verification ceremony coming up because every 10 years, the resolution must re-verify all these treaties and whatnot. And because the royal family is now without a marriage to Tayan royal, the emperor is forced to quickly dragoon the only sexually compatible royal available, Prince Kiem, into marrying Prince Tam's widow, Count Jainan. Hope I'm pronouncing these names right. It's another one of those stories where you're probably not saying the names right, but hopefully I'm saying these in a recognizable manner. The Count Jainan of Thea. And now Kiem isn't exactly the emperor's favorite relative, as he is somewhat of a bad boy in his youth. And to sort of use a real world example, he's kind of like the Prince Harry of this royal family, essentially. His escapades with alcohol, flings with men and women, and other kinds of uh, delinquent behavior in his youth have brought a great deal of unwanted media attention and bad publicity for the royal family over the years, which has sort of made him less than an ideal candidate to be a diplomat or a politician or someone else who's involved in these kind of important political systems. But because of the situation, the emperors are forced to turn to Kiem because they need to have someone. He's essentially the only available body, so to speak. Kiem himself has a great deal of reservations about this arrangement. He's not looking forward to marrying someone he's never even met. But also the fact that he's grieving a lost husband, that he doesn't agree with the way that this system is sort of working, that essentially that people are being forced onto each other, sort of more or less in order to be politically expedient. Jainan, for his part, is also in a state of loss and confusion, having lived a life as a, in a diplomatic function, sort of essentially having to grin and bear it in order to keep up friendly relations with ISCAT and ensure that the treaty is not jeopardized in any way. And sort of essentially in the early days of their marriage, things are very kind of unsettled. They're not really sure how to talk to each other, how to approach each other. They both sort of feel like that the other is only there tolerating them as a matter of duty to their people. And we sort of see throughout the novel how they try to sort of get to know each other a little bit better to try and work through this kind of awkwardness and to overcome the sort of situation that they've been put into to sort of build a life together, more or less. This situation made it even more difficult because the important role that Prince Tam was playing in a joint iscat Thea outer space mining project called Operation Kingfisher that was intended to be a leap forward in the economic and technological development of the empire that's sort of come to a screeching halt without Tam to lead the operation. And this is sort of like a big sticking point between the, the Thea and Iskat in their relations with each other. It plays a very important role in the political situation that between these two planets, as it was a sort of like intended to be a kind of like a joint sort of unifying project, but again, because of this upheaval and whatnot, it's becoming more and more of like a political football, more or less, that the two sides are kind of arguing over how it should be handled. Further, the difference between Thay and Iscat clan responsibilities to different markers of gender and their cultures, other matters of political diplomatic etiquette, imagining the tensions between the master and vassal plant relations and the gaps in Kiem and Jainan's understanding of each other and their different cultures is also an important part of the story. Because I sort of found that compared to a lot of other space operas and whatnot, this novel had an almost kind of anthropological understanding of how these sort of clan responsibilities and the different family relations, the different markers of dress and appearance that may be in different societies. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of the story as well that recurs throughout it. After about a month or so of their marriage, Kiam and Jainan are to meet with the auditors to have their marriage instantiated and verified by the treaty. 
But when they meet with them, the auditors are refusing to verify them. And they ask, well, what could be the problem? We've gotten married. We've done exactly what you've asked. What's going on? And it's at this point revealed that they actually suspect that Tam was murdered, but not it was not an accident. And that the Internal Security Bureau of ISCAT and the military are both investigating the incident for their own reasons that are unknown to anyone but them. So this sort of launches us onto an investigative story in the second half of the novel between Kiam and Jainan, trying to figure out what exactly the different machinations that are going on here. What's what's the problem between the two planets? What's going on in this different larger system? And I don't want to give away too much. So I sort of just sort of leave you with those kind of different parts hanging because otherwise it's a little bit too much of a spoiler to go into it into too much detail. But essentially, as the time goes on, circumstances continue to develop. Kiam and Jainan sort of begin to see different sides of each other and sort of go beyond just being pressed into the needs of their people into this political situation to try and consider their own feelings, their own relationships with their families and between each other in order to try and um, resolve the situation, but also sort of resolve their own inner personal kind of feelings and conflicts as they relate to one another and the people around them. And I think one sort of interesting comparison I read in one of the reviews, I thought it was maybe the publisher, they sort of compared it to Ancillary Justice, the sort of space opera by Anne Leckie, if you're familiar with that one, and crossed with Red, White, and Royal Blue. So it sort of get, kind of gives you like this kind of idea of like this larger space opera system, but also this kind of like romantic sort of awkwardness between the two of them. So I think if you're interested in that kind of like crossover in your head, or the kind of any of the things that I've mentioned with the larger sort of political kind of uh, machinations, the political intrigue that's going on behind the scenes in all these sorts of plots, then I think you will also enjoy Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell. All righty. So next, I think we may go to Virginia. All right. Thank you, Mark. So for this week, I read a gender swap queer retelling of the story of Alexander the Great. Set in space, of course, because that is our topic for the day, but also everything is better in space. This is the story of Princess Sun, who is the heir to the throne and daughter of the current Queen Marshal of the Kaonian Republic, Queen Irene. Now, the Kaonian Republic is formed by alliances of a few different systems who have to band together to try to protect themselves from the ever-expanding fiend empire. And under the rule of the brilliant strategists and the military leaders like Queen Irene, in the past few decades, they have actually been going from the defensive to the offensive, and they have reclaimed some of the land that has been lost to the Fiend Empire, and they've been fighting them for quite a while. And now they have turned themselves into a force to be reckoned with, and there's lots of respect, lots of awe for the Queen, and of course, lots of fear, not just because she has a bionic eye that can blast you to death, but you know, she's just one scary person. So when you think about Princess Sun, don't think about your stereotypical princess stuff. Like she is just like her mom, equally brilliant, equally calculating, and just as scary. In fact, she has just returned from another decisive victory against the Fiend Empire, and people are starting to notice her. But all she wants is for her mom to say, you did good, <laughs> which her mom has never said to her, no matter what she does. But she thinks maybe this time, because it was such a great victory for the 
Republic, maybe this time she will recognize that she is indeed a great soldier, a great general, and that maybe she'll get promoted. Maybe she'll even get her own fleet because all she wants is just to get back out there and fight some more. But when her mom finally summoned her, her mom said that, okay, your next assignment is to go on a tour to these remote places in the Republic. Go show your face, shake some hands, take some photos so that everybody knows and everybody is reminded that it is good to pledge allegiance to the queen. Sun, of course, was furious. Just want to get back out there. She wants to win some more battles. She doesn't want to go on vacation. But the queen has spoken. So Sun went away. Meanwhile, a royal wedding is announced and is being planned in the capital of the Republic. Queen Irene is getting married again. She already has multiple consorts, they call them. Mostly political alliances, but maybe also some out of love. We don't know. But this time, she is being married to a girl half her age, and she belongs to the House of the Lees. Now, the Lee House is probably the second most powerful family in the Republic. Everybody is super afraid of them because they are in charge of surveillance. So they can see all the things that you're doing. They know everything about you. And not only that, they are also the family that is kind of in charge of carrying out all the unofficial orders from the queen. When the queen needs things to get fixed, when the queen needs people to disappear, that's who they call the Lee House. And so with this marriage, you can imagine their power can only increase now that they are even closer to the queen. But not only that, the citizens, they're all really, really excited about this wedding, especially because they are hoping that this new consort is going to give Queen Irene a child soon. Now, right now, Sun is the only heir. And despite all her military successes, and they do respect her, that portion of her, they don't like her. Not just because she's like scary, but mainly because she is not fully Kaonian. She's a mixed race girl and she's half Gatoy. Now, Gatoy is the most despised race in the eyes of the Kaonians because they're basically these relentless killing machines that are employed always by the Fiend Empire to go after the rest of the galaxy. And they are, for some reason, very loyal and they will do their bidding, no question asked. So they have always been like their nemesis. And so nobody trusts Egatoy. And because of that, nobody wants to trust Sun. And so with this new marriage, maybe, maybe someone else will become the next queen instead of Sun. And that is probably a reason why Sun and also her father are both being sent away while they are having this wedding. But a royal wedding is such a joyous occasion. You can't stay hush-hush for long. After all, in the Kaonian Empire, you got your 24-hour non-stop broadcast of all the news about the royal family that you need. It's kind of like a reality show, maybe a bit of propaganda mixed in there. And of course, soon Sun find out about the wedding. And what do you do when your mom is getting married and you're not invited? You go crash the party, of course. So this is the beginning of Unconquerable Sun, 
by Kate Elliott is book one in the Sun Chronicles. Book two, Furious Heaven, is coming out next year. I already got a galley of it. Can't wait to get into that. And this is everything you need from a space opera. If you love space opera, if you are a fan of this subgenre, then this has everything you want. Everything you expect from a space opera is here. You have non-stop actions. You want space battles with lasers and dragnauts and lots of explosions? You got that. You want close comeback fight sequences? You also have that. You want battles on land that are won by giant sacks of cumin and paprika and black pepper and other spices? Yes, you have that too. And of course, you're also privy to all the secret discussions and all the planning, you know, all the strategizing in the war room. Um, so this will also be, I think, a, a good one for anybody who loves military sci-fi. And of course, just like Mark said in the introduction, Space opera, gotta have drama. So move aside days of our lives. This has all the drama you need. Or including one of, of course, my favorite, court intrigue, political machinations, backstabbing, traitors, lies. You have like family drama with mother and daughter going head to head. You have all these houses or these families that are plotting against you. Assassinations, so many assassinations. Secret love child, you have that. You got illegal science experiments, genetical engineering happening in the basements. And you also have creepy people that are born with two faces. And it is so much fun just untangling all these threads and figuring out who you should trust. The answer is no one. It's just so much fun. And of course, in a space opera, you also got to have a good found family and Sun and her companions and her entourage of people are so much fun. All the companions are actually given to Sun by one of the seven sort of important families in the Republic. When you have people that are being sent by potentially your, I don't know, are they friends, are they enemies? Who knows? But all these people who, they're not just people that hang out. They're actually Sun's advisors, Sun bodyguards, Sun confidant, and each of them has a specialty. We have James, who's a brilliant hacker, who can get you access to anything. You have Octavian, who basically teaches Sun and her companions everything they need to know about how to build a, a weapon. You have Hestia, the lover, kind of like referring to a little bit to the Alexander the Great thing. A lover who, even though you're not really supposed to have a relationship with your companions, but Hestia definitely has a thing going on with Sun. And also Alika, last year's Channel Idol Fair winner. Channel Idol is kind of like your American Idol. And why do you think you need a musician to hang around you? Well, when you need a diversion, when you need to gather a crowd so that you can use that as, as a distraction, as an obstacle, if you want everybody else to look somewhere else while you do whatever you're doing, who is better than dreamy, handsome Alika with his angelic voice and his amazing ukulele playing skills. The whole entourage, like, there's just so much fun. But they're not always best buds because like I said, many of them come from like potentially families that want to kill you. So within this found family, there's always questions. Like if something happens, like, is it you? Did you betray me? There's always a little bit of that. And one of the point of view that we get other than Sun was Persephone, who is from the Lee house. And she's been trying to escape all her life. In fact, she tried to run away, hide in the military academy, hoping that her family won't find her. She can just like stay there, graduate and become an engineer. That's all she wants. Five years, five years she managed to do that. And then 
just on the day of her graduation, when she was being assigned her dream assignment, she got called into the principal's office and they said, um, sorry, but your family's here. They've sent a spacecraft and they're going to come pick you up. So all along, they knew exactly where she is and they're calling her back because they need her to do something, their dirty work. So this has got everything. Like I said, it's tense. It's almost like a political thriller in some way. Got great world building and everything's just gradually reviewed. So you gradually learn more and more about the world. It's also a really good coming of age story because, you know, you can see Sun, you have Persephone, and there's also another character. They're all kind of trying to like find a place in the world, especially following some really powerful parents in the case. And I think this book managed to become character-driven but also plot-driven at the same time. And you can see this is just the beginning. I can't wait to see where they're going to develop. So super, super exciting. It's a good choice for any space opera fan. So again, this is Unconquerable Sun by Kate Elliott. Thank you, Virginia. Definitely sounds like a very multifaceted, multi-dimensional story that would appeal to a lot of different people. I feel like I need to read that one now right away almost. So I think we're going to go to our existential question now. So for this week, I was going to post a question to all our book friends that in a lot of these space opera stories, there's often a lot of different uh, fantasy planets, different, maybe sometimes they're Earth-like, sometimes they're very desolate, sometimes they're very dynamic. So if you could live on any type of planet, doesn't matter what kind it is, it could be realistic or unrealistic, what type of planet would you want to live on? I am basing my answer on a Star Trek uh, original planet, Sigma Losha 2, which you may recall is when they go to the planet that is, everyone is obsessed with uh, like 1920s, like prohibition era Chicago. And and essentially how they get around this, how this happened is that, uh, I can't remember, there was some sort of like colonizer or something and they left this like textbook called Chicago Mobs of the 20s. Everybody gets super obsessed with it. And then they all start living like mobsters in the 20s. So I don't know that I would want to be a mobster in the 20s, but I like the idea of taking a historical era that you're like interested in and then basically like just having a whole planet like claws play it all the time because then you don't have to worry about like the space time continuum like you don't have to worry about changing events it can evolve like in its own different way but you get to get up like every day and dress like a 1920s gangster uh and like pretend you put on a, like a chicago accent so definitely like i'm i'd have to think again about the time period like maybe right now um i don't know like some edwardian thing or something but i just i just really love that that idea i'd totally forgotten about that episode thank you so much for bringing that back to mind. <laughs> Oh, Star Trek original series is so bananas. Um, I am going to go to the other big star franchise um, with a little bit of a twist in that I really want to live on like a library planet where it's just like all of it is like an interconnected library or information repository. So kind of like the the the, the Jedi library on Coruscant which would be very cool. Or if you've ever seen the Avatar animated series, the library underneath the sand, like I just want it to be that where it's all the information is coming into one place and all the people are coming to this repository to find it. Yeah, that's that's my nerdy little dream. Maybe it's the Doctor Who enjoyer in me, but the one uh, episode in which there is a big universe or like 
planet-wide library, I'm pretty sure they get eaten by the shadows. So yeah, yeah there's a lot of little bugs involved. Yeah. I I don't know what planet I would necessarily want to live on. I think I would go where my friends are, which is a cop-out answer. I I like traveling, even when we are on our current Earth. And so I feel like I don't know if I would live on a planet in a sci-fi. I think I'd be the plucky pilot that you pick up to smuggle the goods. I don't think that I would be on a planet. I think I'd probably move between them. So, yeah. And then I'll bring all my friends on my little spaceship. And then we'll have a great time. And I can confront the vastness of space on the daily as I look out the window and I see the stars and I consider the vacuum and I go into existential dread and then I ignore it because all my friends are on the spaceship with me. When I, when I got the question, the only thing I could think of was all the planets in no man's sky. That's what I was thinking of because important, very important color palette as Fiona had taught us. So I think no man's sky has some of the most prettiest planets and 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 any kinds of like and it's all so many different kinds so i would like to go to a planet where it's like you know you walk around the corner there's something else it's always like something different and super vibrant kind of color but it's got to have mountains snowy mountains i think that's how i imagine my planet to have and probably it's okay to be bright but not hot that would be my kind of planet but yes all the beautiful landscapes in no man's sky with all the like really really fun creatures in it would be my kind of planet well i think mine's also like maybe a bit of a cop-out but in a lot of different uh sci-fi there's like always like kind of like a tropical resort planet whereas like it's all just like a giant vacation place like you can do all your fun stuff it's like the whole planet somehow it became dedicated to going on vacation more or less and i guess unless you live there maybe you have to work there but that's kind of like my vision for what i want my planet to be because then it's like if you have the planet like this then you can just go on somewhere else there's probably gonna be like a winter planet somewhere else there's gonna be like all these other different planets in this universe hopefully so i can select this one and if i ever need to go away somewhere else then i can just take the spaceship off to somewhere else sounds like no one wants to go anywhere we just nobody wants to live in space we just want to live on earth it should look like chicago it should look like a vacation resort i was gonna say the vacation planet sounds like the place the murder mystery starts so (laughs) i don't know I don't know if you truly want to go to Vacation Planet, Mark. I don't know if you're leaving that one. Many an episode of Star Trek starts with them at Reason. They think, oh, we're just going for some fun shore leave. Yeah, I can actually think of a video game, the series called Star Ocean, where there's actually also a resort planet and immediately like aliens invade and like wreck everything. Okay. I think moving on then, maybe we'll go to Kareen next. Yeah. Yeah, let's not let's not end with me. Um, so I was a few pages in when I realized I had made a colossal mistake, like a truly horrible error in judgment vis-a-vis the book that I had chosen and then committed to read. Because again, if I'm going to start it, I'm going to finish it. And on the surface of it, It seemed like a good pick. And for this, I blame Wikipedia because Wikipedia describes this as a space opera, fantasy, Korean folklore, and mathematical themed books, which like three out of four of those things I am interested in. 
It also won a ton of awards. So it won the 2017 Lotus Award for first novel, <laughs> the 2016 Stabby Award for best debut, which is a hell of a name for an award. Um, it was also nominated for the Nebula, the Hugo, the Clark Award. I had read some of the author's previous books, Phoenix Extravagant, their middle school book, Dragon Pearl, and had really enjoyed them. And so I was like, ah, this is an easy pick. Space opera with an author that I tolerate? Like, how bad can it be? Real bad. It could be really quite bad. So, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. You are kind of like, dropped onto this planet attack with our main character, Kel Cheris. And in the review from NPR, Jason Sheehan, um, as you are kind of dropped into this world with no knowledge of what's going on, and then there's a horrible battle where people are just getting liquefied is maybe the next best way to describe this in great swaths. As NPR, Jason Sheehan said, and nothing gets easier from there. You're not going to get an explanation of what's going on. You're not going to get any, like, context of where you are and what's happening. Forget that. You are just here, and you can't leave. You are dropped in, again, as what Jason Sheehan calls a book of unforgiving world building, which is a sentence. So, okay, I'm going to try as best as I can to explain this in as neutral of words as I can find. So our main character, Kel Cheris, is a infantry captain with me so far. She it works for the Kel, which is one of the six factions that make up the Hex Archate. Archate? Doesn't matter. The important thing is, is there's six of them. Each of them have, like, their own fun banners and their own, like, vibe. So the Keller are kind of, like, the militaristic. The Schwoes are kind of, like, the spies and the masterminds. There is the Narai, who are kind of, like, the engineers and the researchers. And then there's other factions whose names are not important. They all work together on a calendar. And if people believe in the calendar hard enough... You can use calendar math to do whatever you want. But if people don't have consensus in the calendar, then these heresies create a disturbance in the calendar and you have to kill them all. And so many people are killed. So many horrible descriptions of people getting killed. So Cal is really good at calendar math, but they use some bad calendar math. And so they get noticed by the people who are in charge of calendar math. And they're like, oh, you're using some funky dates. But that's okay, because... In the Fortress of the Shattered Needles, which is very important for the Void Mouths, there's calendrical rot. So someone in there is messing with the calendar and making up, like, Day of the Hippo. And so they're making exotic calendars, which is a problem. Problem. And so they need to send someone in to root out the calendar rot by killing everyone who believes in Tuesdays. 
And so they ask Kel for what her plan is to kind of get in and take out this calendar rot. And she's like, I know. I am going to enact the help of disgraced General Schwarz Jadau. Now, he's infamous because a long time ago, he was a general who never lost a battle, which on the surface is rad. But his last battle, he won by just killing literally everyone. And he's the only one left standing, so he won. He killed all of the people he was fighting against, and then he turned around and killed all of his people. Mm-hmm. In graphic detail. In graphic detail. But he was still a good general, so they made him a ghost and put him in a cocoon. And so her plan is she's going to take him out of the cocoon as a ghost and put him in her brain, and then they will go and fight this calendar badness. Okay. The moral of the story is that war is hell. Yes, as is this book. Um, So, if you are looking for something that has what is called an amputation gun, and just people getting glopped, and a body count of, like, millions, just millions of people killed, uh, and little little bits where, where you get to know a soldier who's on the ground fighting the heretics with their bad calendars, um... And then they get killed in horrible ways and there's lots of eyeball stuff and just like rotting arms and that, then you could do no better, no better at all than Nine Fox Gambit by Yoon Ha Lee, a book that made my brain make just a high-pitched squealing noise the entire time that I was reading it. If you enjoy people dying, and no makeouts. Again, Wikipedia led me to believe that this would be a space opera. So when they described that Cherish's best hope is to ally with the undead tactician, I was like, oh, cool. Maybe the genocide was a mistake or a misunderstanding or it wasn't really him after all. And maybe they make out at the end and that could be fun. Oh, no. The genocide is very accurate. Then you should check out this book. It's part of a series called The Machineries of Empire. If you really enjoy Starship Troopers, I think this is also for you because also a lot of people die unnecessarily. Yep. If you would like to see violence, <laughs> gratuitous violence used to actually say something, you could try The Poppy War, which is a, a, a lot more book. But um, yeah, if you hate Mondays, read The Nine Fox Gambit. I kind of really want to read it now. <laughs> You did an excellent job describing this book. Just for the calendar bit. I just want to know about the calendar. <laughs> it's an interesting idea, but people got really shirty when people were like renaming the calendar. I don't even know what day it is. I don't care that much, but these people really care. And they will liquefy anyone who believes otherwise. As they should. Agreed. I don't like... I don't really like violence, but I really think people should be punished for messing with the calendar. Okay. Thank you, Corrine. <laughs> I think everyone's got an opinion on Nine Fox Gambit now. I guess today we'll finish off then with Fiona. All right. I am very happy with my pick. So 
I went with a sort of like I would call it a more grounded, like uh, character driven subbase opera, uh, you know, which sounds very me. I read An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon. Uh, and this was actually Solomon's debut novel. I think they have written some good books since that we have talked about on the podcast. So, whew, okay, where do we start? I'll start with the like big space stuff. It takes place on the ship Matilda, which is a seemingly very large ship. It's uh, one of those situations where they're barreling through the universe looking for the promised land, but nobody believes anymore that the promised land actually exists because they've had generations and generations living on Matilda. Concept I like for sure. The ship is, you know, it's not just like a ship with a couple of decks. It's it's a whole world with you've got your like deck that has nature on it and it's got all this infrastructure, but it is actually organized somewhat by like the antebellum south. Um, so upper deckers are white, and then there you sort of gradually are further and further down the decks um, as skin darkens essentially, and there is wide mistreatment. Our characters who live on the lower decks are subject to constant violence, rape, forced work. Their lives are very difficult. And they are made more difficult by the outages that have been happening on Matilda. And essentially, there is no heat on the lower decks, although everything seems to be fine on the upper decks. And they are huddled together and rationed on the lower decks where they are freezing their butts off, which making their lives even more unpleasant than they already are. The best part of this book are the the main characters. We have Astrid, who is definitely on the autism spectrum. She has a lot of difficulty interacting with other people, understanding their the way they communicate, and, for instance, has trouble when people are not literal. She takes everything literally, and this makes it really hard for her to communicate with people. However, she is a healer, and she is a genius in her own way. She has her botanarium, where she goes secretly to kind of escape the difficulties of life and to do her science. Uh, and that part is really fun, because it I always, <laughs> I always like that like seasoning of science in my books, even if I don't necessarily understand it. I love a character who who is into science. Aster is a, a very lovable character. She's she's quite soft and squishy on the inside, but of course has to be hardened on the outside to live this difficult life. And there are many people who love her in her life, but uh, she is more focused on her science, and also unraveling the mystery of her mother's death. Her mother took her own life right after Aster's birth. And so she was raised by her auntie, who is a great character on her own, uh, and who deeply, deeply uh, loves Aster, though Aster doesn't seem to be entirely aware of that. There is also Giselle, uh, who I think is the standout character. Giselle is Aster's bosom friend. They are like sisters and they're really opposites in a lot of ways. Giselle is filled with anger um, and is constantly lashing out at the world. She has no fear. Um, she has an obsession with fire. Uh, she constantly wants to burn things up to feel something. Um, and she also deeply loves Aster. And again, Aster is a little bit oblivious to it. And I feel like the book 
Scott's main issue was kind of the, ironically the same as Aster's lack of awareness for Giselle. Giselle is an amazing character who gets pushed aside a little bit at a certain point for Theo. Theo is a little bit of a convoluted character. He is the surgeon. So where to start? He is the hands of God, <laughs> uh, believes that he has been called by God to do his work and heal those people on the ship, which he does very well. And yeah, he's constantly toting around, saving people, doing good stuff. He is also the son of the previous monarch through a lower deck affair. So he was born very light-skinned, was accepted into society. As he grew older, it became apparent that he was a bastard child. So his place in society is like a little bit precarious, and, and it makes it kind of difficult to characterize him. He has a lot of power, especially because he's favored by his uncle. But people kind of just sweep under the rug that he, that he comes from, from this, this affair. This is where things got a little convoluted for me. So the present monarch, who doesn't seem to be doing anything about the blackouts, becomes ill. And when he becomes ill, Aster finds out that Sargent is going to become the new monarch if the current monarch dies. Sargent is Theo's uncle. And for some reason, he's very bad and evil. This is what I couldn't quite grasp. <laughs> He's very bad and evil. And we hear it a lot and a lot and a lot, but didn't really get that feeling as much. So it's this big, like, it's going to be really bad if he becomes the monarch. But you're like, okay, I guess I'll just take you on your word. And Aster is very afraid of this possibility. And so she has to decide what to do if the monarch dies. The whole plot sort of centers around this, uh, like the central mystery of Aster trying to recount her mother's steps before she died because it seems that her mother was on the trail to finding something big. We don't really know what that something big was, but we know that her mother was a healer, her mother was a scientist like Aster, and she took the time to encode all of her findings so that not even Aster could pick it up in her journals until the brilliant Giselle, who always seems to be one step ahead, and yet we're following Aster, uncodes all of her mother's journals and puts Aster on the right track. Uh, like I said, very character-driven. I cared a lot about the, about Aster and about Giselle. Um, it is ripe with violence, with, with personal direct violence. So there are no big space fights in this, so you will not get your your inter-spaceship battles in this one, if that is what you're looking for. I think it kind of toes the line of being a space opera because I feel like it kind of, it has that world that you could easily zoom in um, to any part of it and explore. But we are very zoomed into the story of Aster. One of the things that I loved about it is it's very queer. So, you know, I'd say it's queer not gay. And, and in that distinction, I mean that we have a whole society of intersex people. Aster 
herself has a very kind of ungendered identity. We have all sorts of expressions of sexuality and and asexuality and romantic and aromantic in all of these different characters. It's a very um, homophobic society in, in the way that most of our characters express themselves, not quite at the binary of gender. For instance, Theo is considered to be a girly man. And this is something that he has paid for a lot through his life. And, and we do see a lot of that homophobia enacted or that or that transphobia enacted. However, each each of these characters is is um, fully realized in their gender and sexual identity and empowered in themselves. So I, I feel like it's a very it's a very empowering book in its queerness um, and just like really cool to see all of these centralized queer characters and then all of these side character queer characters. And uh, River Solomon themselves are an intersex non-binary author. Um, so they are definitely someone who I am going to uh, continue to follow. I love the their take on on space of, of making it very science focused and very character focused in this kind of zoomed in way uh, that that a lot of space operas may not. So if you if you like literary space operas, I will definitely recommend to you An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon. Thank you, Fiona. It's kind of an interesting take on space opera. You sometimes see that where it sort of takes historical or earthbound sort of issues and sort of transports them into space or into like a interdimensional kind of vessel, so to speak. So definitely interesting to see that as well. All righty then, that's all for us this week. Thank you for tuning in again, and we'll see you again next week. So have a good day. Come on, Mike, you have to have like a good sci-fi like sign off. It's very important. To the stars and beyond. There <laughs> we go, there we go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, will we get copyright strike? If we use like the the space, the final frontier, like little, <laughs> like the little outro, we just like tack that onto the end of the bucket. Is that within? Is, it, is that within budget? Just <laughs> sample Star Trek. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, more like, I think this is an asking forgiveness instead of permission kind of situation. Do we have? <laughs> do we have the ability to withstand whatever happens if someone finds out? Are we big enough for them to actually find out about it? That's the thought. Yeah. Is it fair use if it's under like eight seconds? Just speed it up so that William Shatner sounds like a chipmunk. Space. Or, or or we could like one of us could record it and we could re-record the music itself. But if it's like in a minor key, we can do it in a major key or vice versa. On the ukulele? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it is it different enough then? At that point, this is just sort of, I think, homage. We might be covered under fair use. Yeah. Well, it's like cover songs, right? On YouTube. Like, people do that. So go. Go for it, Corinne. What's the theme? What is it? <laughs> okay, eight seconds. Done. <laughs> yeah, Stop count it now. Out. Count it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.